Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are taking a short break in our series in the book of Deuteronomy to share with you the first lecture that Alistair Roberts delivered last week as he taught our course on the Exodus theme throughout the whole Bible. You can look for the entire course to be released soon on the Theopolis app. And speaking of that app, we do invite you to download it from your app store. You can also create an account on our website, app.theopolisinstitute.com. And there you'll find a bunch of free content and behind a small paywall, you'll have access to hundreds and hundreds of audio lectures, dozens of eBooks, and we're always adding to that content each week. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Alistair Roberts teaching on how to read the Bible and the theme of the Exodus in the scriptures. So this is the first lecture of a 20-part course on the Exodus. It will consist of a series of lectures of just under an hour in length, and the course will cover the whole scope of the biblical text. It will take us from the very first chapters of the Bible to the very end, and along the way, take themes from the whole of the Scripture and themes that will illumine the whole of the Scripture. And then from there, we'll move to consideration of what these things mean for theology, worship, and our lives in the present. As we consider this, we will be having a series of lectures that cover various parts of this. So the first lecture, this lecture here, is an introduction to the sort of reading that we will be undertaking the sort of reading that is required to explore these sorts of themes. We'll consider what it means to read the Bible attentively, with an eye to literary features, with attention to typology, to symbolism, and to theology. We'll be thinking, what is typology? What is symbolism? What are some of the literary features that we should be alert to? And from this more general consideration, we will turn to look at the Exodus pattern, which in many ways is a fundamental pattern for understanding the Exodus as it reappears in various other texts, and also as it appears in texts prior to the events of the Exodus proper. This will orient our attention to some more specific features of the scriptural narrative, which we'll be focusing upon over the course Finally, we'll be looking at the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, which introduce symbols, themes, archetypes, and narrative threads that frame the rest of the biblical narrative, and perhaps especially the story of the Exodus. So that is the first lecture. The second lecture and third lecture will continue to focus upon the book of Genesis. There is a lot of prehistory to the Exodus, When we get to the story of the Exodus at the beginning of the book of Exodus, it is not an unfamiliar story in its lineaments. We've already heard the story before in other forms. And so I want us to consider those other forms in which we encounter the Exodus before the Exodus. We'll think about the way that the Exodus is part of a larger story of God's dealing with the nations and with his people Israel. The covenant made with Abraham, 
and then the story of the descent into Egypt at the very end of the book of Genesis. The heart of this course is found in lectures 4 to 13, within which we'll be looking at the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. The Exodus proper, the Exodus as we tend to refer to it. We'll closely examine the foundational Exodus and entry into the land, which is the fullest initial presentation of the themes that we're considering here. In the lectures that follow, we'll be exploring ways in which the themes and narrative threads of Exodus stretch beyond the text that we most naturally associate with it, being developed in the subsequent narratives of Scripture. In lectures 14 to 16, we'll be considering the rest of the Old Testament, and in lectures 17 to 19, continuing into the New Testament. And the course concludes with a final lecture within which we will focus upon some of the relevance and application of Exodus theology and themes to the life of the church, to Christians, and to society today. Now that's the broad overview of the material that we'll be covering. As we cover this material, we're going to be operating in terms of a watchword, which is attention. When we read the Bible, this, perhaps more than anything else, is what we need to practice. And attention is something that is, on the one hand, an act of will. We're listening, we're paying attention, but also it's a skill. It's a set of skills that we develop as we learn how to pay attention, as we learn to what we ought to pay attention, and as we learn some of the practices some of the companies, some of the um, ways in which more broadly um, we can practice attention and be in contexts that are conducive to the practice of attention. Attention is something that we must learn. It doesn't always come natural to us. In many ways, it's something that we have to keep up. It's something that we'll often find waning as we're listening to a text we can often find our attention wandering, we get diverted into other matters, our mind can sometimes feel like a butterfly going from one thing to another. And so attention needs to be mastered, it needs to be focused, it needs to be kept up, it needs to be developed in various ways. In this opening session, I want us to consider something of what attention involves and some of the ways that we can improve our capacities of attention in part by teaching us some of the ways in which Scripture rewards attention upon specific features. So, for instance, one question that we might find ourselves ask, asking on several occasions during this course is, where have I heard this before? Now, that's a question that provokes a certain sort of attention. It provokes you to think and to keep in mind specific details that can unlock later details. It provokes you to read the Bible intertextually, to focus upon the ways that texts are working with other texts and playing off them with allusions, quotations, echoes, and other such things. There is a danger when we're reading the Bible to come to it forearmed with our own categories our own questions, our own burning concerns, 
our own cultural frameworks and categories. And these can often be an obstacle to hearing the Bible on its own terms. And so when I'm talking about attention, one of the things that I'm wanting to highlight is our putting ourselves at the disposal of the text. The text sets the terms for our inquiry. The text is that to which we are subject, not the text to us. And so as we approach the text, we want to put our attention at the disposal of the text to allow it to lead us. We'll often find that it will lead us in directions that might surprise us. And part of what attention gives us is the reward of surprise. Because the text, as it sets the terms of the inquiry, can lead us to places that we didn't think it would lead us, to places that we wouldn't go if we were the ones setting the agenda. We want to listen then to the Bible on its own terms, and doing this well requires patience. Once, one thing that I often recommend is that if you're reading a biblical text, read through it three or four times, just out loud. Listen to it. Put all your questions to one side and just listen to the text. And as you listen to the text, ask yourself after you've listened to it three or four times, what questions emerge from the text itself? What details of this text stick out to me? What things surprised me? What things, if I were telling this story, would I have left out? Or would I have put in? The silences of the text are often very important. Why, for instance, as we're reading the story of the Exodus, don't we hear anything of Moses' upbringing? If we were telling the story, we'd be all about the story of Moses in the court of Pharaoh and his childhood, what he learned in his school. What was he being taught? The wisdom of the Egyptians? Well, we're told later on that he was, but we're not told that in the text. Of Exodus. We're left to speculate, to assume, and so the silences of the text are also significant. God speaks, and we are supposed to listen. When we come to the text, we can often approach it as if it were some inert body of literature that we need to practice interpretive skills upon. And so it's some sort of corpse that we need to go through and discover its anatomy and we need to perform some sort of autopsy on it and discover all the relevant parts and consider them in their integrity. But when we're coming to scripture, we're coming to the living word of the living God. And in many ways, this requires a posture that is less that of interpreters before an inert text than that of faithful, submissive, and hopeful hearers who are seeking to hear God's voice. And that requires a tuning our ears to the text, to listen to the text on its own terms, and to listen expecting to be changed, to listen as those who do not know what will come of the encounter with the text that we're experiencing. So, attention is the watchword. What are some of the specific things to which we should be paying attention? What I want to do now is to consider certain features of the biblical literature more generally, and this is something that we'll encounter on many occasions within the story of the Exodus and the stories associated with Exodus, some more general features that will orient us 
in our reading. So the first of these is intertextuality. It's a long word, but it's a way of speaking about the ways that texts have conversations with each other. The Bible is an internal conversation where we can read one text and we can hear within that text allusions or echoes or ways in which other previous texts are being cited or uh, referenced. This is something you'll find in every part of the scripture. Even in a book that doesn't really cite the Old Testament at all, the book of Revelation, in just about every single verse, we find some sort of illusion or echo of the Old Testament. Throughout the scriptures, the scriptures are having a conversation with themselves. And that conversation is one that illumines the reader. One of the things that it helps us to do is to discern an authorial vantage point within the text itself. This is always a challenge as we're reading the scriptures. As we read the scriptures, it's very easy to read the scriptures and to have no frame of judgment within which to assess the actions that are taking place within them. And so we come to the text with our own assessments and it's just a series of stories of things that happened. Now, it seems to me that as we read the scriptures, what you'll find is that the authors tip us off to how to read specific characters. And they do that often by connecting characters with other characters, or by connecting different sets of events, or by connecting different objects or realities, symbolic realities, for instance, of some higher reality or some future reality. So as we're reading the text, as we keep our ear to the ground, as it were, we will hear tips to how to read specific characters. Was that action a faithful action or not? How do we understand something beyond the categories of this is a bad guy, this is a good guy? How do we understand those areas where some good guy is acting in a way that is suboptimal or unfaithful or falling short in various ways. Intertextuality will often help us there. It gives us resources by which we can assess actions, assess events by connecting them with other things. The other thing that you find with intertextuality is it gives us a richer framework for understanding salient features within a text. Now, one thing we'll be thinking about a lot is typology. When you think about typology, you're thinking about relationships between events across time, particularly, and often what you'll see is that those relationships are such that there are significant similarities and differences. And when you have that sort of typological framework or template that you're reading in terms of, you can see with greater salience both the similarities and the differences. And both of those things are thrown into a sort of relief that enables you to read them with more insight because you're reading stories over against each other. You're seeing the differences and you're seeing the similarities. And as a result, a very simple text can communicate something very rich and deep because it's playing off other texts. And so there's this constant conversation within the scripture 
that helps us to interpret and understand the events that are taking place, that orients it towards a more theological reading. So when we're reading the story of Scripture, we're not just reading, this is what happened. We're reading a story that reveals something about God's purposes and history and something about who God is. And we're also reading in a way that helps us to understand later stories and earlier stories. So intertextuality is one of the first principles that we'll be following in our process of learning attention. A second thing that we need to recognize are literary patterns within the text. The text comes to us in a literary form. Now, we could have been given just a list of facts, the timeline of what happened, for instance. Or we could be given just some list of doctrines, the things that we really need to get from the text. Maybe God just wants to give us a series of doctrines that could be expressed within a confessional form, and then he could just give us the confession. We are given a story, and that story is one that provides us with a literary framework within which to understand its contents. Now, literary patterns can be clues to understanding texts, and we'll be thinking about a number of these. Um, you can think about literary patterns that um, can be acrostics, for instance. If you're reading the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs ends with an acrostic poem, an acrostic about the virtuous woman. Now, that is the sort of capstone of the book of Proverbs. It's also, in some ways, it's the A to Z of the book of Proverbs. It's summing up some of its themes within a specific figure. And as you read through that acrostic, you'll see many allusions back to earlier references to wisdom and her character within the book of Proverbs. So it's a way in which a literary pattern, an acrostic, an A to Z pattern, is summing up and giving a full presentation of the complete character of wisdom and also the complete measure of wisdom that has been learnt through the book. Now we can see other examples of literary patterns. One of the most basic is the parallelism. If we're reading through the book of Proverbs, you'll see these parallelisms. And these parallelisms are sometimes synonymous parallelism, where you have a statement and then another statement saying the same thing in the same positive way, but in different phrasing. Then sometimes you'll have this more negative form of parallelism. So you have a positive description of the righteous man, and then you'll have a negative description of the fool that's playing off the earlier description of the righteous man. Sometimes you'll have a form of parallelism that is um, a sort of a description of something and then an amplification of that in some other way. Or better is something than something else. So these are literary forms that provide us with often little riddles. If you're reading the book of Proverbs in terms of this, for instance, you'll be able to see that if you had the first statement in many of those parallelisms, and you were asked to guess what the second statement would be, being told it's a negative or um, syn synonymous parallelism, you would often not guess what comes next. 
It seems tautological and it seems maybe redundant when you're reading it and just glancing through it, but when you're actually asked to guess what would come next, it's not a straightforward synonym or it's not a straightforward um, parallel. There is something that's slightly off and as a result, it encourages you to meditate. What are the details being paralleled? Break it down and see the more specific parallels that are being drawn and some of the contrasts and some of the twists, some of the ways in which you're being encouraged through that literary form to recognize something about the connections that exist within reality and to meditate upon that. Now, that's one example of a literary form. We've thought about an acrostic, an A to Z pattern or an A to Z pattern. We can also think about chiasms. Chiasms can be thought of maybe as bookended structures, where the most basic is the sort of inclusio, where you have at the beginning of a section of a text, you have a statement that is repeated in some form at the close of that section of a text. It's a good way of discerning a certain block within a biblical text. And so as we're trying to read the text, we're wanting to realize where are the seams within this text? Where are the natural breaks in the narrative? And often it will be those literary features like inclusios that help us to recognize that. And a chiasm is like a bookended structure with bookends within the bookends. And at the very center of that, you'll generally have the most important element that's framed by all of those bookends. So as you're reading through a text, often these are things to be alert to. You're reading and you're trying to pay attention to the way in which something at the beginning is mirrored at the end. Now there are very strong examples of chiasms. One of the strongest is the story of the flood. And you can see that even in the numbers given for the flood. You have a seven-day period, a seven-day period, a 40-day period, a 150-day period, and then the Lord remembers Noah, and then you have a 150-day period mentioned, a 40-day period, a seven-day period, a seven-day period. Now, there's a very natural movement there. You can see the numbers rising, 7, 7, 40, 150, and then falling, in falling in the same order, 150, 40, 7, 7. It's like a flood rising and falling. And there's also a there and back again pattern. Mary Douglas talks about this as a ring pattern. So it's a ring pattern in terms of starting off at a point and going full circle and returning you to that point again. Now we can maybe think about this in terms of another sort of pattern that we encounter in Scripture, which is a sort of climactic spiral where you have a re repetition of a pattern, but it's a movement forward as well. So it's like climbing a spiral staircase. As you climb a spiral staircase, at any point you're standing over a point that you've trod before. You've gone through that circle pattern before, but as you're ascending, you're also moving on that axis. So you're not just moving in circles and getting nowhere, you're moving in circles and moving up. And so often as we're reading the text of Scripture, we'll see these sorts of patterns. This is something that we see, for instance, in the story of the plagues, where there is a three, 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 one pattern. And so there's a pattern of three, you're going around that circle, and then you go again, another pattern of three, and then another pattern of three, and then the climax, which is the final plague. Now, as you've read it that way, you'll begin to see similarities between 
plagues 1, 4, and um, 7. And then you'll be able to see the way in which each of these cycles amplifies patterns that are seen in the previous cycle. So there's a movement up, but there's also the same movement. There's a similar movement in the same plane. And so we've thought about things like acrostic patterns, parallelism, um, thought about chiasms. We might also think about panel structures, what I call diptychs. If you think about a image from an altar screen where you'll often have an image on one side, an image on another that relate to each other, this is something that we find in scripture on several occasions, where we have two passages over against each other that invite comparison and contrast. Think, for instance, of the stories of Genesis chapters 18 and 19, the story of the angels coming to Abraham. Abraham's sitting in the door of his tent. It's the heat of the day. He sees these three men coming towards him. He runs out to meet them. He bows his face to the ground. He invites them in for a meal. The meal is described, and Sarah is standing in the door of the tent, and there's the declaration of the child that they're going to receive. Now, she's made fruitful, and then the angels depart later on and go towards Sodom. The next chapter, chapter 19, we see the angels coming towards Sodom. It's now evening. Lot is seated not in the door of the tent, but in the gate of the city. He bows his face to the ground. He invites them in for a meal. The meal is described. Now, instead of a promise of new life in the doorway, there's a threat of death in the doorway. And as you read through the story, the wife of Abraham that was made fruitful in chapter 18 is mirrored with the wife of Lot, who turns into a pillar of salt in chapter 19. And so there's a sort of panel structure. But as you hear that description, I'm sure that you can recognize that those stories are playing off each other in a way that, through the literary form, invites us to reflect upon those similarities and differences. What is it that accounts for the difference in fate of Abraham and Lot? What is it that helps us to understand the way that these stories are the same and yet different. And so the literary structures are things to pay attention to. Cycles, again, I noted the way that we have sort of climbing cycles. You might also think about the ways that there are cycles that can be noted even within the story of Genesis chapter 1 in the days of creation. There is a cycle of three days of forming, and then there's a cycle of three days of filling. And again, they're covering the same sort of ground. So day one corresponds with day four, day two with day five, day three with day six. And as you follow that pattern through, you're seeing a two-cycle event that leads to a final climactic day, the seventh day of rest. So literary patterns are one of the means by which we'll be able to discern the meaning of texts. Symbolism. When we talk about symbolism, it's helpful to think about it in terms of the character of reality. Symbolism is not merely literary play. Symbolism works because we are in a world where things are related and connected by virtue of God's creation. 
And within scripture, we see a lot of attention to symbolism, to the relationship between things on different levels of reality. The way, for instance, that trees tell us something about the righteous man. We earlier chanted Psalm 1, and Psalm 1 speaks of the righteous man as being like a tree planted by the streams of waters, giving forth its fruit in season. Elsewhere, a tree is used as an illustration for the people of God. The people of God are like a vine or like an olive tree. We can think also of the ways that animals are connected to people. The whole sacrificial, sacrificial system is premised upon a symbolic association between animals and persons. And the way in which one can symbolize and be analogous to the other. All of this is characteristic of a way of thinking that doesn't come very naturally to us. We tend to think in more abstract and detached forms. We think in a sort of logic that abstracts from reality, strips away its particularities, and thinks about its fundamental structure. Symbolism is a lot more analogical it is more concrete as well. It focuses upon particular objects. For instance, the whole sacrificial system is a sort of poetic mapping of Israel's spiritual reality onto the tabernacle, onto the animals of the sacrificial system, onto the geography of, um, that's formed around the tabernacle and the temple, and onto all sorts of other realities and substances in the world. The tabernacle, as we'll see, is a microcosm. It's a microcosm of the cosmos. It's a microcosm of the nation. It's a microcosm of Sinai. And it's a macrocosm of the human body. And in all of these ways, we're encouraged to think about the world as analogically related through different realities. And to think about the world symbolically. To think about the ways that lower realities can bear the impress of higher realities, to think about, for instance, the tabernacle or temple in terms of the heavenly realities that are manifested within them. When we practice baptism or the Lord's Supper, we are practicing symbolic rites, symbolic rites that reveal something about reality. And they do so using means of water, bread, wine, things that carry great symbolic freight in Scripture. If you read through the story of Scripture and just focus upon bread and wine, you'll find all sorts of associations. Lady Wisdom sets out her feast. She gives bread and wine. We might think about the story of Genesis chapter 14, which we'll look at quite shortly. The story of Abraham going to Melchizedek after the defeat of the kings. And Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. Bread is connected with grain, the grain that is prepared through the agricultural system and through the year of the agricultural system, which is described in the feasts of Leviticus chapter 23. Bread is connected with things like yeast, yeast that is, or with leaven, leaven that is removed in the feast of unleavened bread, leaven that is added in the Feast of Weeks. We can think also of the ways in which wine is connected with 
the events of harvesting. The vine, Israel is like a vine, and the people of God are like a vine. I am the vine, you are the branches, in John chapter 15. And so these realities are freighted with symbolism. And as we practice something like baptism again, with thinking in terms of the waters above and the waters beneath, we're thinking about the waters of the original creation. There's a new creation event. We think about the waters of birth, perhaps, as well. We think about the waters of liminal divisions between realms, the waters that you cross to move from one place to another, the waters that Israel was defined by, the waters that divide them from the life of idolatry on the far side of the river Euphrates to the life as they're called out of their old world in Ur of the Chaldees to come to the promised land that the Lord will show them. We might think about the river that's crossed as Israel receives his name in the story of Jacob crossing the ford of the Jabbok. Or we might think about the story of the Red Sea crossing or the story of the crossing of the Jordan to enter into the promised land. All of these are symbolic of crossing, of having a new identity, of being passed from one realm to another. They're also storied crossings. And so when we think about symbolism, it leads us very naturally into a consideration of typology. Typology concerning the relationship between events, things, persons, over the course of history, and the way that symbolism moves through time. So the way that we cross through the waters of baptism, or the ways that we're brought up out of the waters of baptism, or the ways that the waters of baptism are those that are poured out upon us from above in blessing. Those connect us with the story of the flood, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's a story that takes up fundamental creational symbolism, and in so doing, it also connects us with that earlier story. That was the breaking down of an old world in order to form a new world. In baptism, there is a sort of flood event where a world that is about to be destroyed is placed into death and a new world is brought to life. And we participate in that in anticipation of this broader destruction of the world and raising of a new one. Typology is a form of symbolism that is particularly attentive to time and the unity and development of temporal realities. Now, often people can think about typology in very binary, binary or um, in terms of dualities and polarities. So we think about type and anti-type, fleshly, spiritual, shadow reality. And it can often be a form of thinking that consigns Israel and its life to the shadowy, fleshly, typical reality and thinks about the work of Christ in terms of the other end of that polarity, in terms of anti-type, in terms of spiritual, in terms of reality. Now, there's an element of truth there, but at the same time, as Paul talks about the realities of the Old Testament, he sees Christ present within the events of the Exodus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the rock that followed them was Christ. They tempted Christ. Christ is the one that brought them out in the book of Jude. 
we can also see the way that the events that befall them are ones that connect with the spiritual realities experienced by the church. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. They are our fa fathers. And so they participate in the same sort of reality that we do. And so typology is, in many ways, the exploration of symbolism as it works through the medium of time. And it also helps us to be attentive to maturation through history. That history is a story of growth and growth to maturity. This is a theme that is really prominent within the work of James Jordan. As we read the story of scripture, we're not just reading a story of redemption from sin. We're not just reading a story of holy war against Satan. We're re reading a story of mankind grown to its full stature in Christ and then in Christ and his bride. Reading the story of the Bible, we should also be attentive to other literary features of the text that will clue us in to symbolic and typological features. So, for instance, pay attention to things like the narrator of the text. Um, how is the, what sort of narrator are we dealing with? Is the narrator an omniscient narrator? Is the narrator a character within the story? We might think about the way that the plot of the story is significant. How is the story structured and told? Is there a sort of dischronologization at certain points where certain events that occurred later are actually brought forward in time? We might see a possible example of that in Exodus chapter 18 in the story of Jethro at Sinai where it seems possible that events that occurred later in the events of Sinai are brought slightly earlier on in the telling. Think also of something like the story of Matthew and the crucifixion, where we read about Judas's, um, his suicide before the death of Christ, although it clearly happened sometime later. It's dischronologized in certain ways, though it's quite obvious to the reader that this is something that's referring to later events. Um, but where it's told in the story is important. And so the plotting and structuring of the narrative matters. How are particular characters characterized? How do we get a sense of who Jacob is? What sort of person is he? Or David? We're not really told much about appearance of characters in scripture. Occasionally we're told about their more general appearance, that they're beautiful or attractive or um, maybe not so attractive. But for the most part, we don't even get that. Much of the time in scripture, we are not given details of historical verisimilitude that describe in flowery colors the scene that uh, something, um, I mean, we're not told, was there rain that day? Was there a light breeze? What was the, um, what was the scene like? Was there a certain scent in the breeze? Or what was it like? We're not usually given those sorts of details. The details that were given are usually fairly spare, and yet those details in very minimalistic brushstrokes can tell us a great deal. They tell us who characters are, who they are related to, what are salient details about that character that we should be paying attention to. Details that are of significance for the story that follows. And so the characterization is not really for us to get a full mental picture of what this character looked like, what the scene was like, 
Rather, it's giving us specific details to keep our eye upon, details that help us to understand the meaning. Sometimes characters are described primarily indirectly. And so we learn about a character by listening to them speak, for instance. Discourse and conversation and dialogue will tell you a lot about a character. And so we need to be attentive to that. We need to be attentive to relations that they have with other characters, ways that they're spoken about. So when we're reading a story and someone is repeatedly said to be um, the brother of someone or to have a particular identity, for instance, when does it tell us that Moses is a Hebrew? Or when is he characterized as an Egyptian? When he goes to the land of Midian, he's described as an Egyptian. Pay attention to that characterization. It tells us something about the character of Moses that might be significant for reading what happens. Pay attention also to style. For instance, pay attention to the sorts of words and phrases that are used by the text. Things like diction. What word is used to describe some particular reality? If we're thinking about describing a dog, for instance, there are many words that you can use to describe a dog. You could speak about the specific breed. You could talk about it as a canine. You could talk about it in terms of its pet name. Maybe it's Rover. Maybe that's the name of the dog that you're referring to. Or maybe you might refer to it in terms of its owner, so-and-so's dog. All of these refer to the same reality, but they do so with different connotations. Maybe you're referring to it with a scientific name or referring to it as a canine. Each one of those descriptions matters. The choice of words tells you something about the way that reality is to be understood. Pay attention also to other poetic devices that are used. Pay attention to repetition. Pay attention to the ways that certain phrases that are odd may echo or allude to some other passage. Also think about the setting that we are given within a story. How is it set? Um, the scene setting within the narrative itself. How is a situation described? Um, where is a conversation taking place? What are the surrounding, um, what's the surrounding environment? Is it taking place in a garden, for instance? If it's in a garden, Maybe think about the relationship with other gardens in scripture. Or maybe something takes place near a tree. Or perhaps it's something that takes place in a courtyard. Again, pay attention to those sorts of details. Scripture doesn't really waste its language. When we're reading scripture, it's very economical with its words. And its power is often in the ways that those words, because they're so spare, can connect to all these other stories and events. So pay attention to those sorts of things. Pay attention to context. Where is a story told within an overarching narrative? For instance, if you're reading the story of Genesis, you might wonder why is it that Genesis chapter 38, the story of Judah and Tamar, interrupts this story with such a narrative force and dynamism to it, the story of Joseph being sold into Egypt. And so you're reading about Joseph going down into Egypt with the Midianites, and then the narrator says, wait a moment, I have this other story that I want to tell you. 
And then he tells you all about the story of Judah and Tamar, a story that takes place over at least 40 years. And then you get back after that to the story of Joseph and Potiphar's house. Why would you interrupt a story as dynamic as the story of Joseph with the story of Judah and Tamar? Pay attention to context and you might find a few answers. And it might help you to read the story of Judah and Tamar and the story of Joseph when you do so. Patterns and motifs are other things to pay attention to. Perhaps the great example of these is found, greatest example is found in the story of Genesis chapter one and the creation. The creation, as we've noted, has a sort of numerical pattern with three days, three days, one day. The days of creation of forming, days one to three, and the days of creation of filling, days four to six, and then the day of rest with which the whole sequence is crowned in day seven. And so there's a pattern to be observed within the days of creation. And there's also a progression where each day involves a specific act of creation that as you follow through, there's some movement taking place. Now, within this course, one of the patterns that we'll be especially attentive to is that of the Exodus. This is the Exodus course. And the Exodus pattern is one that we find in several events in scripture that are connected to each other. The Exodus pattern is perhaps most fully laid out in James Jordan's Through New Eyes. He has a chapter within which he discusses this and he lays out each of the elements. And so this is taken from Jordan's treatment of the subject. The first is a threat that is presented to the people of God that causes them to leave home. Obviously, in the story of Genesis, we have the threat of the famine that leads to Jacob and his family going down into Egypt as Joseph provides for them. They leave their home of Canaan and they settle in the land of Goshen. And then the second stage is oppression and bondage by the serpent. The serpent is the great figure behind the other threats. The serpent, in this case, is Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the one who wants to defeat the people of God, to oppress them, and to take them for himself. And so as we're reading the story, we might see the character of Pharaoh as a representative of that great serpent, the serpent that we see in Genesis chapter 3 and the serpent that we see in places like Revelation chapter 12, the great dragon in the heavens. And so in the story of the Exodus, this oppression takes place in a number of different phases, reducing the people of God to servitude, the phase in which he's trying to kill the baby boys, and then the open killing of the baby boys by casting them into the river Nile. Then there's deception. This deception is seen in the story of Exodus, particularly in the deception of the Hebrew midwives. They outwit the serpent. If the serpent deceived the woman in Genesis chapter 3, now the woman is deceiving and outwitting the serpent. The next phase is plagues and blessings. You might notice that on one hand you have curses, the plagues, and on the other hand you have blessings for the people of God. Over the course of the Exodus, we see this as well. There are a series of judgments upon Egypt that gradually distinguish the Egyptians from the people of God that 
divide the two from each other, and the people of God increasingly receive blessings. There is divine intervention on behalf of his people. There's humiliation of the false gods. Maybe this is an event such as the story of um, Jacob and his family fleeing from Laban, and the way that Rachel is seated upon the false gods in a way that humiliates them. Or maybe it's the story of the ark in the land of the Philistines and the way that the ark causes the statue of Dagon to fall flat on its face as if in worship before it. Departing with spoils, Israel plunders the Egyptians as they leave the land. Later, establishment in the land. They're not just leaving an old land, they're going to a new land where they're going to be planted and established. And then building the house and establishing worship. First of all, the tabernacle, but then the story of the Exodus is ultimately finished in the establishment of a lasting sanctuary in the temple. And so that's the fundamental Exodus pattern. And we'll encounter it on several occasions, not just within the story of the Exodus, but within the wider stories of the book of Genesis and subsequent stories in the books of the histories. Now, going back to the very beginning, we find another thing that will be very important for us as we undertake this study. And these are the great archetypes of salvation. The archetypes that we see in the creation narrative. And we've thought a bit about these already. We've thought about the creation pattern, the pattern of forming and filling, the pattern of seven days, so the first day, the creation of light, the second day, creation of the firmament, dividing the waters above from the waters beneath, the third day, the creation of the dry land and the waters appearing as the seas, and then the covering of the earth with vegetation. Day four, placing of the lights in the firmament. Day five, the creation of the fish that teem through the seas and the creation of the birds to fill the heavens. And then day six, the creation of the animals, and then as the second act of creation, the creation of man, and finally the day of rest. That's the great creation pattern. And that pattern is one that will help us in reading certain features of the story of the Exodus. Another thing to notice is the way that the story of creation in chapter 2 presents a sort of model of the world. It presents at the very heart a garden where there is a sort of firmament, division from the rest of the creation, the establishment of a bounded space that has a sort of holy status, where God dwells in the midst of his people. There is sacred food. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is a task, there is a priestly task, guarding and serving in the garden. And this task is one that is defined also relative to the wider world. Adam is placed in the garden, but we're also told that there are waters flowing out from the garden that bring life out into the wider world. And there's also a task implied, as we're told of treasures in the wider world that will presumably be dug up, mined, brought into the garden, and the garden being dressed and glorified with it. So we have a fundamental sort of symbolic structure of the sanctuary that is introduced for us in Genesis chapter two, and an image of priesthood and kingship that will be playing out in the story of the Exodus and what follows. We've already noted the ways that the archetypal story of the conflict between the woman and the serpent 
plays out in things like the story of the Exodus in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. This conflict is one that is introduced for us in Genesis chapter 3. The woman is deceived by the serpent, and then in the great judgment upon the woman and the serpent, we're told, upon the serpent, we're told that the serpent's seed would be crushed, the serpent was, would have his head crushed by the seed of the woman. This great promise of salvation is one that is revealed through the story of the Exodus to occur in the defeat of Pharaoh and then the establishment of the seed of the woman of Israel. We can also see themes of exile and death as Israel is cast out of the realm of life um, as um, stories of exile, for instance, in Babylon, the and original couple are cast out of the realm of life. They're cast out of the garden and away from the tree of life, and they're put out into a realm of death. And so we already have concepts of um, exile, of expulsion. We have concepts of death as a fundamental reality that needs to be dealt with. And we also have themes of wilderness and the Lord's provision for his people within that realm. All of these archetypes will be important as we read the story of the Exodus. As we read the story of the Exodus, keep your eyes upon these archetypes and see how behind the figures of the Exodus, there's a deeper story playing out. The deeper story being the story of Genesis, chapters one and three. This is the story that is set up by the original problem and the original purpose. The original purpose of mankind rising to maturity the original purpose of mankind working to establish God's rule within the world, to fill the earth, to tame it and subdue it, and to exercise dominion within it, and then the purpose of having a sanctuary where God and man are in fellowship, the original purpose. And the original problem, the problem of rebellion, the problem of exile and expulsion, the problem of the serpent that needs to be defeated, the problem of the woman who was deceived by the serpent and the problem of the man who has given in to the serpent and as a result is brought down to death. Read the story of the Exodus in terms of that story and things will come into focus in a way that they may not have come into focus for you before. This is the foundation for our reading of the story of the Exodus. These practices of attention this attention to literary features of the text, this attention to the archetypes that are introduced in the story of Genesis chapters one to three. And as we read the story, I believe that this will hold us in very good stead as we go forward. We'll find that we return to these themes on many occasions. And that pattern that is introduced for us early on is a pattern that is the backbone of all that follows. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. 
That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.